Standardies, episode 28, Sunday, February 26th, 2012. And one of the dreams I always had was to become an actor, but it was a dream that I hadn't, uh, hadn't given voice to because of the fact that I was embarrassed. I think we've all been in the gorilla suit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that your thought pattern has gone full circle from the house to causes like this? Great. And actually, that's where I watched the first SR-71 take off in Miami. Welcome back, everybody. Gentlemen, as always, over to my left, from Grand Forks, North Dakota, DBR and Christian. Welcome back, buddy. Nice to have you, man. Good morning. How's everyone today? How's the ice fishing weather over on your side of the woods? Oh, it's, it's blustery. It's blustery. We got a nice little blizzard coming in. Yeah, I know you had plans to go out today, so I think probably we'll have to have to put those on hold. But as always, over to my right, both my metaphorical and my political right, James L. Johnson, Jr., who hails from the now recovering Detroit, Michigan area. Welcome aboard, James. Thank you very much, and hello to everybody on it. And I'm looking uh, forward to today's show. What's, what's the temp on your end there, James? I know we've been talking about the weather, but a couple of Midwestern boys, you know, we've got to get to that. Uh, you know, we've got to find out what's going on out there. Yeah, we had a little bit of snow on and off, nothing to really talk about. In fact, I'm going to go out and barbecue today after the show. Well, I... <laughs> not me. <laughs> and, and coming to us from the 818 area code out of Southern California, hailing from Platoon 374. Welcome aboard, Mike Farrell. Thanks for coming on board. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, we have an exciting show for us today because it's, it's, it's pretty deep insofar as this will be the, not the first time we've had all three Marines or I had, all, I had four Marines on the program. However, it is the first time we have ever had a Dress Blues Award winner out of boot camp come on the, on the program. Now, now that, tell me that that's not special. I mean, something we all wanted to do, and only one of us here today has been able to pull that off for us, and that's, that's Mike has, has made that. And, and, and uh, of course, some of the folks wondering who Mike Farrell is, you know him obviously from, from his role on MASH, but not a lot of you guys know of Mike's uh, career and his time that he spent in the United States Marine Corps. And we were doing some um, digging around here, Mike, and it said that you were, uh, was it 1957? Was that right? Was that the year that you were in the Corps? Was it 58? Both years, 57 and 58, yeah. Yeah, 57 and 58. And uh, came out of Platoon 374. Maybe, Jim, you can tell us on this one, because we're in Platoon 3099. Is there any (laughs) relationship to the threes in this one? I mean... Um. No, I can't help you with that. That's yeah. not the way the series numbers will roll. No, I know. A little, <laughs> little, little bit back in the olden days. And so, anyways, one of the reasons why we asked Mike Farrell to come on board here today is not so much because of his role that, that he uh, had in MASH, although that's an important piece, but I had an opportunity to pick up your book a few years back when it first came out, and it was one of those things where I'd kind of kicked it around and kicked it around, carried it with me. I've traveled. I'm, I'm in Netanya, Israel right now, and I've kind of carried it around for a while. And uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go ahead and read this, uh, finally get a chance to read it. And I came across the first part of the first half of your book. And what was amazingly important to me that I think, and it kind of sparked the entire uh, concept of the show that we're going to be putting together was, uh, we know a lot of, uh, of actors that, you know, we look at you guys and you're like, wow, this guy's done a really amazing things. And, but what's appreciated about the work that you talk about in your book and the work that you did there was, um, here you are an actor that's done a lot of uh, amazing things and, and the way you share about what happened at, that are normal issues and folks and some of the struggles that you were uh, dealing with um, uh, as you left the Marine Corps and got started in a part of your career. 
And these are some of the same exact struggles that some of the people that have been on our program have been about now. Of course, none of us are, you know, made it to, to, to be as public as you are, but not less that uh, trying to reach out and change your lives. And so kind of inspired this program in these segments, and we really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Uh, James and I have been talking about this. If I can quick a couple, uh, couple of questions. Um, we've talked about it over boot camp. Now, can you tell me about this, uh, your, was it Corporal Starks maybe in your book when you were in Marine Corps basic training? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but James L. Johnson was our drill instructor. And I would like to take an opportunity to flick his ear with a little bit of your experience <laughs> and your drill instructor. So with your help, kind sir, could you tell us about this Corporal Starks fella? Corporal Stark uh, was the, I guess, junior um, uh, of the three DIs in my platoon, and uh, he was from somewhere in the south. Um, you know, by my standards, he was an older guy, but he at the time, but he was a young man, I'm sure. Um, we had three DIs: Sergeant Kelly, Sergeant Reyes, and Corporal Stark. Um, and Corporal Stark was the one who um, probably was certainly was closest to our age. Uh, as the recruits, he was also the one that was in the least good physical condition of the three of them, I think. Um, and um, it would be hard to say we liked him. We didn't like our DIs at all. Um, we feared them. Uh, but he was the one that um, eventually we understood that we could outrun, uh, which was the fun part of it. Um, if uh, you know, if we were doing the uh, running on the on the grinder or doing whatever, uh, uh, we could we knew we could we could beat him, <laughs> and it was uh, it was something that platoon took uh, took great pleasure in, <laughs> until of course he, he he would he would simply stand in the center of a circle and run us around him and uh, <laughs> and um, let us know that there was nothing we could do that was going to get uh, get over on him so. He, he was uh, he, he, beyond that. I don't know what to say. He was um, he was a uh, he was a tough guy, just as the other two were. But he was um, just a little more accessible to us, I guess. And uh, and, and James uh, James could tell you. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to any of our programs. If you ever get a chance, we 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 have a lot of fun in a program that we call War Stories, in which. Uh, we recount, I certainly recount, a particular thrashing from Mr. James L. Johnson Jr. over there, which, by the way, I've, I've not fully recovered from. I'm, I'm in therapy now, but don't worry about that. But, <laughs> but we, um, uh, one of the conversations I was, I was reading about, um, about your experiences in boot camp, um, the thing about, uh, about Marines and about what we're uh, all experiencing, the same thing, it, it's basically all the same. Now, granted, we weren't in the Quonset huts, although, James, I think you were in the Quonset huts, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, yeah, and you're an MCRD San Diego, and you and here's the thing that a lot of folks don't understand: you truly are a Hollywood Marine. I think you're also our first true Hollywood Marine, having graduated from Hollywood High, and uh, and we're talking about the piece. But I, what I wanted to talk a little bit about was about your experience when you got out of the Marine Corps and you and you went out and there's a fellow by the name of from Ohio, I believe his name was Tyus. Is that right? T y u s. T-Y-U-S. Yeah, T-Y-U-S. And th- here's what's one of the conversations, because as we leave um, our basic homes and we join the Marine Corps, we, we run across folks of all different kinds of uh, places. 
And you bumped into the, a very serious uh, time uh, from California and then into the Marine Corps and then running into folks from different cultures. Um, tell us about Tyus and, and how that changed your outlook and, as the Marine, young Marine, experiencing that. Well, um, I was in, in Japan for a short time, well, for a while, um, after, um, uh, after going, going overseas. Um, and uh, this fellow, Tyus, and I were stationed uh, together, uh, and I liked him. He was a nice guy. We bumped into each other. I don't know kind of what the circumstances were. I don't remember them, but he was a nice fellow, and we uh, kind of became chums and uh, went out on uh, uh, Liberty together periodically. And the thing that I found um, unsettling was as Tyus was black, uh, probably still is, and uh, <laughs> and uh, when we would uh, be out, uh, you know, in the in the Yakuska area together, that was not a problem. But when we came back to the barracks, there was a, there was a sense of tension uh, that I didn't at first understand. I was I was raised in the, here in Los Angeles, and racial differences were understood, but there was no overt, at least in my experience, there was no overt racism that was, um, that was clear. It was, it was all kind of hidden. Um, and many of the, many of the other Marines in the, uh, in the group were from the South, I suppose, and from parts of the country where racism was a more, a more real part of their lives, or at least a more um, evident part of their lives. And and the idea that uh, two Marines, one white and one black, would be pals was difficult, clearly, for some of these guys. So there was a kind of tension in, uh, when we would come back from, uh, from Liberty. And it, it was something that it, it took me a little while to kind of, um, I, I, I could sense it, at, and, and, but I didn't understand it. And then when I, when I understood it, it was really, it was really uh, discomforting. So it was, I, I I remember it um, partly because I like Ty so much, but also partly because of uh, subsequent uh, things that happened when I got back to the States and uh, investigated the whole race situation a little more. Um, I remember it as kind of my first, one, one of the first events in my life that opened my eyes to the depth of, uh, of racial um, discord in the country and uh, made me want to see if I couldn't figure out a way to do something about that. How old were you at the time? Uh, 18. 18. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was on, refresh my memory, that was at Okinawa itself? No, that was, that was in Japan. That was in Japan. Uh, I'd been stationed in Okinawa and then moved to Japan, and uh, uh, that was where I met Tyus. Well, you got a couple of Marines. David was up there, uh, is in Okinawa and in your neck of the woods. No, yeah, I, I was Hansen. never in Okinawa. You were never in Okinawa, Camp Hanson. Yeah. Okay, I was on Okinawa, and I was on Camp Hanson, so I read when you were talking about going down to the Kadena, Kadena Air Base there, I, I was thinking, yeah, you know, it kind of comes back. I wonder how different things looked back. I was in, um, in the Corps in 19, or I was in there in 1984 is when I was 84. there. I was in, yeah, I was in, uh, in Okinawa in 1984, and Camp Hanson very different. In fact, give you some idea, it was on Kadena Air Base that I had an opportunity to watch the, the original Ghostbusters. 
which was obviously <laughs> yeah, that's that time period, you know, Ghostbusters, well, you know. Well, so you you did the same thing we did though. Kadena was the <laughs> the airbase was the place we went to for liberty because yes, it, was, uh, it, had, it had everything. It had everything we wanted at, uh, up at Hanson, where we were living in tents and slopping around in the mud. Well, I worked I worked at um, the Marine Corps base, which was in uh, Smedley D. Butler's, where I actually worked in in the headquarters and service pallet up there. But I was stationed at Camp Foster, and we would. We would drive up and, and hang out at, at Kadena. It was it was great. And actually, that's where I watched the first SR seventy one take off and land. We would it would come flying around, and, and we would we would be out there. So when we were when I was reading your book, I'm thinking I, I kept wondering because your your um, explanation of what Hanson looked like and what ours looked like was was very different, and I, it kind of kind of struck my piece. So okay, another question here. So you left, went to Okinawa. Or left Okinawa, but when you were at Okinawa, you uh, you were in, with uh, guns or tanks. What was what was it that you were? Antos. Antos, in fact, made by Alice Chalmers. You know that? Did you know Alice Chalmers made those? Now that you mentioned, so you drove a tractor. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. <laughs> and it and it didn't run more than it ran, as I recall. <laughs> So you went on, and then uh, and then you went to and then you went to um, went to Japan, and after Japan, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, you went to MCRD in San Diego. Is that right? Went back to I went back to I was in uh, Balboa Naval Hospital for a while in San Diego, and then back to MCRD. Yeah, I was released at MCRD. So um, uh, so after you graduated, so you kind of went full circle, and so you ended up working there, and four years, four years or three years, Marine Corps. I joined for two. It was a re- it was a reserve program uh, that was available at the time, um, and I was actually discharged uh, about a year and a half. Gotcha. So you so you so you come up. You got the dress blues. Uh, the Marines have got you all uh, all hardened up, and uh, you're ready to be ready to whip the world. And you leave, and you go back to going back home again. And uh, you ended up you ended up getting your first job. Now, this is similar because as I was reading your book and I was talking, I thought about James. Now, James came back from Vietnam and the first place that he went to work for was at a bread factory making bread. Is that right, James? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Rolling in dough, you might say. (laughs) (laughs) And you got to drive a truck, a truck. So what what was running through your mind as you're, you know, here you are, Marine, saw the world, traveled the world, you land back, now you're in Northern California, or Southern California, driving a truck? Well, that was actually not my first job, but uh, that was one of the jobs I had. I had, uh, had a lot of jobs, as you can imagine. One of the, one of the first jobs I had was uh, driving a car across the country for a guy um, and leaving it with him at uh, Fort Bragg uh, and then hitchhiking home. Uh, um, but... I'm not sure I understand your question. What was my what was my thinking as I was going? Yeah, it was running through your mind. Yeah. Well, you know, I was I was a young guy. I was uh, not, I guess, 19 years old at the time, and um, and trying to sort of figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, and one of the dreams I'd always had was to become an actor, but it was a dream that I hadn't uh, hadn't given voice to because of the fact that I was embarrassed, uh, shy. Uh, kind of unwilling to, uh, uh, I guess, run the risk of having somebody make fun of me for wanting to, uh, primarily my father, make fun of me for having for having a dream like that. And 
But having grown up in essentially in Hollywood, uh, I always say you uh, grow up in the lumber town, you go to work in the mill. Um, my sense of the, what I wanted to do in life it felt like uh, that made that made sense to me if I could figure out a way to do it. So I was I was when I was driving that wagon around the city delivering stuff. Um, uh, you know, I was always kind of dreaming. I, I was going in for actually, I was delivering groceries for a while in the back doors of movie stars' homes, and thinking, God, you know, this wouldn't this be nice to be able to live like these people do? And so, I, the reason why I think that's important is because I wonder how many vets are coming back and thinking about it because they, we kind of all do the same thing. We've got we've got this hardened body and a, a tougher mind, and we get there. We're thinking, Wow, you know, the whole. The whole world is out there. My whole experience is what, what's going to happen. We're young. We're 18. We're 20. And we're getting out there. We're thinking about it. And, and here you are thinking about, that, thinking about that dream and becoming an actor. Yeah. I was stocking shelves at the grocery store three weeks after I got out. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we had the, the, in, uh, I'm not sure what the first job I had was aside from that driving the car across the country but when I got this job it, it was it was a, um, a grocery store in um, West Hollywood that was similar to one I'd worked at when I was in high school in Beverly Hills where people would call up um, you know the, the, the people who could afford to live that way would call up and order their groceries over the phone and then we would deliver it to them um, so when I got back uh, out of the Marines and was looking for a job and got one at this place, it was essentially the same thing. I was I was doing what you were doing, but instead of stocking shelves, which we did some of the times, I was loading up a truck and taking it out to people's homes. So, so when you say that you were, you were dreaming most of the time, can you elaborate on that? I mean, were you actively thinking about that, or was it? What, what does that mean when you were doing that? Can you tell me more about that? Well, uh, you know. Um, one of the one of the things I remember most about boot camp was how lonely and frightened I was. And I remember they used to, um, God, I don't. It doesn't seem to me it was very often, but every once in a while we would be marched out into the um, at the south edge, or, I want to say south edge of the grinder, where there was an auditorium, and then we would get to see a movie. And I thought, man, this is. This is the time I could sit and relax and and not be afraid somebody was <laughs> something was going to be <laughs> snapped to uh, yeah. some snap inspection or somebody mm-hmm. was going to be roused in me or somebody was going to be busting me for something or another. I could just sit and watch this damn movie, and uh, it kind of underscored for me the 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 attraction of the motion picture industry and that 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 it surrounded me for much most of my life. Um, so when I got out, I just thought, you know, how do you do that? How do you get to be part of something like that? And, uh, as you said, I was in good shape and, uh, I was strutting around and I was carrying boxes of stuff and I was driving a truck and I was, I kind of kept thinking like the, the story about Rock Hudson, you know, somebody, uh, somebody saw him leaning against a truck and, uh, one day and stopped and said, you're, you, you should be a movie star. I thought maybe somebody would do that for me, and of course nobody did. It kind of did happen, though, didn't it, Mike? Well, it sort of happened. The same guy that that evidently discovered Rock Hudson <clears throat> and renamed him um, approached me 
one day, uh, and uh, he was a, a gay um, uh, agent uh, who was decided who decided I was a, I, I think he decided I was a likely target, and um, uh, offered me a ride when I was I was hitchhiking home from work, and he offered me a ride, so I took it and. Uh, he gave me his card, and he said, you know, if I ever wanted to talk about being in the movie industry, he could uh, he could maybe help out. So I went home, and I remember talking to my sister about it. I, this guy, and I, I didn't know who he was, but he had his card said he was an agent, and he, uh, I knew I knew you know what the what the, uh, uh, the the subtext was, although he didn't say anything. There was never any overt. Um, Pass made, but I, it was clear. <clears throat> living in living in West Hollywood at the time, uh, even before it became the city it is now, you learned about gay people and about the problems uh, associated with um, uh, their existence and how uh, we, as young guys, uh, were quite often uh, approached by them. Uh, it was a it was kind of an easy way to for me years. Of, in the early years, it was an easy way to get to school or get whatever if I just wanted to stick my thumb out and hitch a ride. And, you know, if they'd make a pass, I'd say no thanks and get out of the car, and that was it. But my sister said, well, now this is, you know, there's going to be a price to pay if this guy's going to help you make a start in the motion picture industry. And I said, no, you know, he'll do what he does, and he'll say what he says, and he'll, if I can make some advance in the industry um, without having to uh, compromise myself. You know, with Val, I can handle myself. So, long story short, uh, he eventually set up a meeting for me with a, uh, a guy who was casting a film about a, it was a World War II movie. And, uh, you know, the fact that I was uh, not long out of the Marine Corps made me one of the perfect candidates for a role in this film and I sat down with this producer and the guy started asking me about my relationship with this agent I said what do you mean and he said well you know he's he is who he is and he does what he does and I said yeah well not to me <laughs> and he said uh, he said well now don't uh, some version I can't remember the conversation exactly but he sort of but what he said in essence was Everybody's going to know if you uh, have him as your agent and you get your career going that the price you paid was uh, your your sexual relationship with this guy. And I said, uh, okay, thanks for letting me know that. <laughs> and, uh, and went back to this guy and I said, you know, um, that's not going to happen here. Uh, and he said, uh, some version of uh, get smart, fellow, if, if you want to you want to have a career you're gonna to have to cooperate with people like me and I said I think I can find a better way to do it so you you actually had a lot of folks in your life um, kind of nudge you bump you some people a little less than a bump um, talking about the house of course at the moment yeah. nudge and, and kind of um, take some risks with themselves even with you and that was just that was just one of your that was just one of the people right that you came out oh, and yeah, I was, yeah. I, I, I was pretty green um, then. Um, I'm, I'm glad, happy to say that I had enough, had my feet on the ground enough to be able to understand what the uh, what I was flirting with 
no, no probably the wrong use of the term, but but that's a, that's a, in essence what was happening. I thought I could get around this guy and the way in which uh, he said uh, the business was run. Um, but what I found was, and it was actually due to a, the, 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 uh, a push from another friend, um, a buddy of mine uh, was working on the Sunset Strip at a gas station, and uh, I used to stop in and see him at night, and we'd shoot the pole, and uh, there was a pal of his who was also working at the station, and he was from Canada. He'd come all the way out from eastern Canada because he wanted to be an actor. And he and I were talking one day, and he said, you know, you, you, you talk about wanting to be an actor. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, maybe you, maybe you ought to do something about it. Because <laughs> I was still hankering for, to some, for somebody to sort of tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you're a movie star. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, well, what do you mean? And he said, I'm taking part in an actor's workshop here in town, and we're being taught uh, about the business and about the way to, you know, about, about acting by this fellow who's a well-known uh, character actor. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's like going to school. That's the, what you can do is you can learn your way into this business and, and, uh, and earn your way into the business without having to compromise yourself. And I, I, was, I was really um, a terrified young man I, as I look back on it now. I, at the time, I thought, you know, I can handle myself and all that stuff, but I was really scared. I was a very shy kid, and uh, the idea of getting up in front of an audience and doing something was, was terrifying to me. Yet I had this great desire to be, uh, to be a successful uh, actor. So it was, a, it was a real kind of dilemma I was faced with. So I kind of accepted his challenge and went down to his, uh, the place he was studying and um, watched what they did. Uh, essentially sat in the back of the room and cowered. <laughs> while everybody else got up and worked on scenes and learned how to comport themselves on stage and eventually worked my way down through from the back row to the front row and, and got on my feet and did a few things and, uh, and, and discovered that it was not only uh, that, that it was fun, that I really did enjoy doing the, the work um, and that was, uh, that was the beginning for me of... Uh, of uh, the realization of, of a long-held dream and also the understanding that you have to take some steps, you have to take some risks in order to um, sometimes realize your dreams. How, how does that jibe with, how can that Mike Farrell, this young, quiet, shy kid, and who's been struggling with, if you re- get an opportunity to read, I really appreciate you sharing that because it makes a lot of sense to a lot of folks about your struggle with your father. How, how does that kid go to boot camp and kick ass and wear those blues and come out on top how does that shy kid become that squad leader and then become the man that you were once you graduated out of boot camp well i would argue about the man i was when i graduated i was bigger and stronger and uh, had been through some experiences but i was still in at heart a pretty shy pretty scared kid um for me, the uh, the experience of boot camp was something I'll never forget because it uh, just surviving it was uh, was a major uh, triumph in my life. But I was I lived in the shadow of my father, who was a big, tough, hard-drinking, two-fisted Irishman who expected nothing less of his children. 
and uh, he was not the man who demonstrated uh, affection easily or at all actually uh, he was a, he was a pretty snotty um, sarcastic uh, guy which is one of the reasons that I never spoke out loud about being wanting to be an actor because he'd have laughed me off the street um, so he died just uh, well it would have been a few months before I joined the Marines um, and um, going into the Marines was a way for me, I think, to prove to myself that I was and could be the man that my dad wanted me to be, um, and therefore surviving boot camp and doing well in boot camp and going, you know, wearing the uniform and being able to identify myself as somebody who was a United States Marine was a, a big piece for me of the... Uh, of the growing up process and the becoming a man process, but it was much of it was um, outward. Much of it was the surface, the the way I looked and the way I s stood and the way I behaved. While inside, I was still, unfortunately, this frightened kid. Um, so the whole process became. Uh, the whole process went on for some time, and you mentioned the house. Uh, if you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to get to it. But uh, uh, that was as much uh, as the, as Marine Corps boot camp. That was as much a uh, uh, a growing a growing experience as uh, as uh, as anything could have been, and it was in fact more the um, psychological part, more the uh, the uh, interior part that uh, I was able to uh, work on in that circumstance as opposed to the exterior that I worked on when I was in, in uh, the Marines. You know, a lot of folks have that, have that, um, have a very similar situation insofar as I wear the uniform and I can, I can have the hard body and I can deal with uh, what it takes to be a Marine. And, of course, as, as, as you know, unfortunately, we know all too well of the two wars that we've got going on. And... This nation, as Jim always says, and I'm going to turn this over to Jim because he got a lot of questions as well. We did a lot of pre-production work here for the show, and I'm kind of monopolizing it. But you, you understand that a lot of these Marines that are out there right now, and, and, and all servicemen, men and women alike, uh, who are going to be listening to this program is listening to you say, you know, I've got, I had the body, I had the physique, but inside I, I was experiencing uh, myself, which is, which is uh, what, what I guess we all would experience. And you went to the house and worked in that environment in which the whole purpose was about peeling back your uh, hardcore, finely crafted bullshit in order to get to the issues that bothered you. So um, I would like you to talk about the house if you got time. Oh, sure, sure. It was... Um well, we're talking, let's see, 19, 18, 19, when I got out, 20, 21, 22, I was going through the process of, uh, after the Henry Wilson, the agent uh, episode where I discovered that, or made the choice and said that wasn't the route I wanted to take uh, to get into the business, I, through the, through the uh, encouragement of the fellow at the gas station, I started an acting workshop and um, worked my way up and you know, you date and you, uh, you meet girls and you take one class or another class and you're 
find an agent uh, who's a legitimate agent who wants to try to get you a job. And I went through a couple of experiences uh, that I always remember. Um, you know, it's a pretty humiliating process, or can be, to try to try to become an actor. And I remember an agent who took me, who, who gave, got me a job interview for a, a movie, and it was another war movie. And uh, I went in and I met the people, and they said, uh, "Well, then this one, uh, it's not going to work for you." And I said, "Why not?" And they said, "Well, the star is Audie Murphy, mm. and Audie Murphy was a very, he was highly decorated uh, soldier in World War II." But he was a very short guy, and I was too tall, and they didn't want to have tall guys standing around him because it would make him look short. So I said, okay. So a week later, it seems to me, I got another interview for another job, and uh, they said, well, this is not going to work. And I said, why not? And they said, because the star is Fess Parker, and he's six feet, six feet, six inches tall, yeah. and you're not. You're going to make him. <laughs> we need people that are going to make him look like an, a, a normal-sized guy. <laughs> you're not big enough. So in one instance I was too small, too big, and the other instance I was too small, and then uh, I finally got a job because I was big enough to fit into the gorilla suit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all those acting lessons, and I got the grizzly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we've all been in the gorilla suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh, okay, I didn't get this job because because I was a good actor. I got it because I was big enough to fit into the gorilla suit, and I thought, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> at any rate, so you go through this process, and uh, at, at at one t I audited a class. Uh, somebody suggested I took a class, take a class at uh, UCLA, an acting class that was being taught by a guy who was highly regarded. And I met this young woman there, and she just knocked me out. She was a young, smart, bright, attractive, uh, uh, talented uh, woman. And uh, oh, after a romance of a year or so, we got married. And I was still this scared kid inside, you know, trying to figure out what I was supposed to do to to solve the problems of being a man and the man I was I thought I was supposed to be. Uh, so we got married, and um, we moved to South. She was a by that time she'd graduated from UCLA, and she was a teacher in a high school. Got a job teaching at a high school in Laguna Beach, California, about 60 miles south of Los Angeles. And I had to join her. I had to be down there. I was her husband, and uh, I had been working. I'd stopped working at driving the truck at the gas station. When I decided I wanted to be an actor, you have to be available to go on interviews, and if you get a job, you have to be available to take the to do the job. Um, so I was looking around to try to find a job that I could where I could make my own time, and I finally went to work for a guy who was a private investigator. And I would do uh, court filing for him, and I'd do, um, oh, uh, we followed people. We did, you know, stuff working on his license, I'd repossessed cars, served process, all this terrible stuff. But when I got to Orange County, uh, he said I could work down there sort of on his license. And uh, what happened eventually was I set up a business with another guy I met, and we were doing the same thing in Orange County, doing work for attorneys and filing papers and serving papers and following people and doing all the crap that private detectives, people that work for private detectives do. Um, and in the meantime, I was, uh, my wife and I at the time were working in the local theater. 
uh, and I became, I learned more working at this local theater than I ever did in any acting class I'd ever taken, and we were having a wonderful time. But um, at, the, at the end of two and a half years of marriage, three years of marriage, I thought I can't, if I really do want to be an actor, I can't be down here serving papers to people. I've got to be up in L.A. So my wife and I talked about it. She was still teaching, and she said it was okay to, with her if, uh, if I quit this job and uh, actually dissolved the company I had formed and uh, went up there to try to figure out how to, how to become an actor. And I was commuting back and forth, and then I spent more time in L.A. than I was spending in Laguna Beach, and as happens when you're young and those things uh, the tensions in a, in a new marriage uh, affect you the way it did me, the marriage fell apart. And uh, I was devastated. Um, I, was, uh, I was a failure in my own eyes. I hadn't been able to make my marriage work. I wasn't uh, succeeding in the career I wanted to have. I was just I was, I was, the, I was the disaster I always felt my father thought I was. And I was uh, an utter wreck emotionally. And I didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine uh, was involved with a place uh, that was called the Manhattan Project uh, because it was, it was based on Manhattan Place in Los Angeles. It was a halfway house formed by a f group of former drug addicts and alcoholics and people with all kinds of uh, social problems. And... Uh, uh, he was part of this organization, and he urged me to go meet them and um, become to, to see if it would work for me to be part of that and learn the process and see if it wouldn't help me. So I did. I went to this place and met these guys and uh, went through their initiation process, which was uh, pretty straightforward. Um, uh, but at the time, I was just hurting. My marriage had fallen apart. My my wife was, you know, I'd lost my wife, and I was just, I was just in misery. And uh, these two guys, I'll never forget these two guys sitting across this table from me, said, "So what do you want?" And I said, "I want my wife back. I want to get my marriage put together. I want to have a, a life that I can be proud of." And blah 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 blah. And I was really feeling like the lowest dog in the territory. And uh, they said, well, what we've come to understand, working with people who've had really serious issues in their lives, is that all anybody wants is uh, are three things, love and attention and respect. What do you want? Oh, I want to get my wife back, and I want to have my marriage work out, and I want to do this, and I want to have a light... And they sort of looked at me and they said, so what we've discovered in working with people from all walks of life who have problems is that everybody wants the same thing in life. They want three things. They want love and attention and respect. What do you want? <laughs> and I said, oh, I want my wife. I was crying. I want my wife back and I want my marriage to put together. And these guys, you know, <laughs> they're just waiting for me to get it. And finally, they said, when, I don't know how many times we'd gone through this, and I said, I got it, that what they wanted me to say were these words. And I said, uh, okay, I got it. I, I, I want love and attention and respect. And they said, I can't hear you. Hmm. And I thought, I 
said it a little louder. <laughs> they said, I can't hear you. And I finally stood up and screamed, I want love and I want attention and I want respect. And before I even got the words out of my mouth, I was weeping to the degree that I don't remember ever having done before. And these two men were holding me. Hmm. And I was, I was experiencing something I'd never experienced in my life. And I realized, of course, now my father never held me. My mother didn't even. Uh, hugging was not part of what was done in our family. And I had exposed myself to these guys in a way, my emotional self to these guys in a way that I'd never exposed myself to anyone. And they said, welcome. You're, if you want to be part of this organization, you're part of it. And uh, what you have to do, you have to make a commitment, and you've just made it, and you have to abide by our rules. And um, if you want what we have to offer, uh, here's the place for you. So I became part of the Manhattan Project and was that for a year, met people, men and women of all races and ages, and people with problems that uh, had been, uh, I'd heard about, but had been sort of really unknown to me, drug addicts and alcoholics and sexual deviates and thieves and people out of prisons and people out of the gutter and people who were just headed for death. I mean, they, they had no sense of themselves, no appreciation of the possibilities in their lives, no hope until they found the Manhattan Project. And, uh, and uh, I was one of them. And uh, I discovered the capacity to love. I discovered the, uh, the, uh, the value in myself discovered the abilities I had, the intelligence and the willingness I had to, to be used for to benefit other people. Um, it, was a, it was an experience that I will never forget. It's where you'd so, also mentioned about this question, sorry Dave, I'll turn over in a second, about the, um, you talk about learning to ask for what, for what you correct. want. And uh, for that vet that's listening, what would you, what would you say to them about this issue, they let's say that somebody on the other line maybe has a something that they're banging around in their head, some something that's cooking inside of them, similar to what you were doing. I thought I found it pretty interesting about this this uh, ability to ask, and people who don't are, and I quote, are are dumbasses, or uh, to that case, that don't ask. Can you talk about that? When when when, when I joined, uh, when I became part of the Manhattan Project, we, we called it the House. Um, uh, when I when I first went to the, pla- the, the the place, I had met these two men who uh, inter- and, and, and didn't interrogate me actually, but they interviewed me. Um, was uh, at an office, and then when I went to the house, I met started to meet these people, and I was part of what they called the stupid group. Uh, and the stupid group was so identified as such because we were too stupid to know um, uh, how to ask for what we wanted, and. Uh, that when you began to learn about your own value and to learn to ask for what you wanted, you graduated into what they called the responsible group. And the responsible group was the people who had 
learned those fundamental lessons and uh, went on to uh, do some more work on themselves and to realize that by working with other people and putting yourself out on behalf of other people, you 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 grew as a as a human being. And, but the key lesson was you've got to learn to ask for what you want, um, and that involves fundamentally it involves having enough uh, sense of yourself, having enough courage to run the risk of being rejected. Um, as somebody once said to me, loving implies uh, being <clears throat> accepting the possibility of loss, of being rejected. And when you ask somebody for help, for love, for attention, for respect, for anything, if you put yourself out there, if you push yourself forward and say, will you do this? Will you love me? Will you help me? Will you be my friend? Will you, uh, you name the rest of the sentence, um, you do two things. You expose yourself and you take a position that argues that you are worth whatever it is you're asking for. And most of us, at least I, in my experience, had no sense of my own value, had no sense that I was worth anything, and that's why I was doing all the gaming I was doing to try and get the things I wanted. Instead of simply saying, here I am, here is who I am, here is what I am, and here is, here is what I want, and I believe, uh, implicitly, I believe that I deserve it. Um, so, so but, you, but it takes a while to learn that. I mean, I, we used to go through these group sessions, group therapy sessions, where people would, I'd say, they'd say, you know, what are you doing here? And I'd say, well, my marriage fell apart. And I, uh, but who are you? I'd say, well, I'm, what, what do you mean? Who are you? Well, I'm, I'm Mike. Well, what the fuck is a Mike? What do you mean, what's your Mike? <laughs> what are you? I'm, I'm. Well, pretty soon, you know, you strip, they strip the, away all the kind of facades and you get down to who you are, which is, a, in my case, was just this frightened, sniveling kid who didn't know shit and didn't know uh, anything, you know, beyond some of the steps he'd learned in terms of how to get by, but really hadn't dealt with the frightened child that was inside him. And when I finally got to that and was able to recognize that and accept that for myself, it allowed me to to stand up and be who I was. But so in a lot of ways, a lot of ways in the, working in the house and in that environment is more like an emotional boot camp, whereas in the Marines you had the physical side. Exactly. exactly. Well, you also have the emotional side, too. But a different type of emotion. That's true. That's true. So this yeah, halfway it, house was really the turning point in your life, Mike. This, this made you move forward, more confidence. You made the Absolutely. contacts you had to make. You Absolutely. became involved because I know we got so much time here. I want to talk about the American prison system. Okay. And I think that's something that's near and dear to your heart. It, it, it is not, actually. It's something I detest because of the way it's operating and the, what it's doing. But it is the issue is very near and dear to my heart, certainly. Yeah, cause I, I agree with you on a lot of your thoughts there, and I think there's a lot of people that are incarcerated that shouldn't be incarcerated. They should be handled in a different way. Yep. There's I a bill that you're, that you're supporting out in California. 
I think it comes up for a vote this year. Is that correct? And it deals with it deals with the uh, death sentence. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm actually part of the organization that's uh, that's uh, started this uh, process. We are what we are putting, uh, hoping to put on the ballot, or it looks like we will put on the ballot, is, a, is an initiative of, of allow the people of California to vote on the idea of eliminating the use of the death penalty and replacing it with life in prison without parole, and in doing so to but it serves a number of purposes. One is it doesn't, uh, it, it eliminates the possibility that we'll execute an innocent person. It, uh, it eliminates the $184 million every year we're wasting to maintain this debt system. Uh, it provides the opportunity for people who are convicted of uh, uh, murder to spend time in prison and do work while they're in prison and take some of the money they earn for that work to put, to put it into a victim's relief fund. And it also provides the opportunity, if we can do the rest of the, uh, that's not part of this uh, initiative, but if we can do the rest of the, pro the work, is to give these people an opportunity, that the opportunity that the House gave people, which is to do some serious introspective work and do, get some psychological help and recognize the damage they've done by the way they've lived their lives and reasons for the damage they've done by the way they've lived their lives and, and change. Even if they never see the outside again, at least they can become uh, productive human beings in, uh, in, a, in a controlled situation. Do you think that your thought pattern has gone full circle from the house to causes like this? And I say the house, your initial halfway house that you were at. Do well, you think this is kind of like a full circle program? Uh, I'm not sure I understand you, but the, the, w one of the things we did when I was at the house was we used to go out to prisons and offer to people who were coming out the program and say, you know, you, you have, you've got an option here when you get out of prison to make a change in your life, to figure out what you did uh, that got you here. And if you don't want to come back here, uh, you, we can give you the opportunity to, uh, to go to a place where you can learn how to lead a productive, uh, meaningful life. And in those prisons, I saw some pretty ugly stuff. Uh, you, you've brought up the subject, so I'm assuming you're in some way familiar with the criminal justice system. And, the way in which it dehumanizes the people that have already uh, demonstrated their dehumanization, um, that it, 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 it really dehumanizes them further, in my view, and really doesn't do anything uh, positive, which I think is what is lacking in their lives in the first place. You know, we, um, there was a time when you were uh, kind of hyperlinking, and unfortunately we're running out of time, absolutely fascinated. Uh, what you're talking about. There was a time you, you went on, you, you've gone through hyperlinking forward a little bit. You, you make it into MASH. You're successful. You, uh, you have, I guess, uh, about a seven-month on and then the rest of the time off. And, and you're starting to see the success of the program. And you start to realize that the program is taking off. And then you meet with Alan Alda and you say that we have a responsibility to the people who are enjoying the program or the people that are buying into it and the message that you and Larry Galbert and the rest of the people are putting out on the screen and you say we have to start being responsible for that. Can you talk about that moment, that arc, when you 
realized that it wasn't just about the TV screen or the actors and the money and the wealth and the fame, but the responsibility piece. And hopefully you can take us to in the program and how think about that person who's who's maybe wanting to channel and change their lives into something positive. Can you tell us about that time? Yeah, it, it let me just clarify. The house was really more the more the place that was the inspiration for that kind of thinking. And as a result of my work at the house, the the work I did after that that put me in a place to ultimately be part of Nash was um, was done at it with a growing awareness of my responsibility as a person and my responsibility as a citizen. So the stuff that's offered to those of us who have are lucky enough to get some success in the industry um, is uh, is pretty seductive uh, but if you have a kind of grounding in who you are and what's important in your life um, you are less likely to be seduced into the the most superficial and uh, most meaningless aspects of it so by the time I got to MASH I had been involved with a lot of different uh, social and political efforts and uh, Nash to me was the realization of a great dream because it was a show that I admired tremendously uh, even before I became part of it. And when I became part of it and saw not only that everything I had thought about it was right, but also that the impact of the show when I went out and did some traveling in some of the off time, as you suggest, the impact of the show was so profound that Alan and I had a conversation in which we said, we, we effectively said, you know, we don't know exactly why it is that this show is having the effect it has, but we do know that it, it, it is happening, having it, and we have to have a, we have a responsibility then to, to redouble our efforts to make sure that what we say here uh, is what we believe to be important and that the people out there who are responding to it um, you know, uh, get the message and understand how how deeply meaningful uh, this process is to us, and how much they mean and their their support means to us. So it just it, it it's the sort of situation that feeds on itself. Once you begin to do work that has an impact on people's lives, you begin to have a sense of the responsibility uh, of that work, uh, of your commitment to that work. Um, and that's whether it's uh, whether you're working literally working or whether you're out uh, uh, doing the kind of extracurricular stuff that I've done over time, um, uh, because of my belief that uh, that people matter, that I matter, that uh, we have a we have a, an opportunity in this life to do something that is uh, uh, empowering to others, some of whom have never had the never gotten the message that they are of any value and have never gotten the message that what they uh, are doing with their lives has a, has a meaning. And, uh, and uh, the, 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 I think the biggest message or the biggest lesson of all is, is that, that we have an obligation to try to find a way to make this world a better place for everybody. Uh, and that includes pulling, helping some other people pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and uh, and uh, leading, living, uh, being an example uh, to the degree we can of the um, of the of the most positive and most powerful and best, most productive and frankly most loving way uh, we can. Well, that is, um, you know, that's something that. 
as we look at those young Marines that are coming out and kind of want to go full circle as well, you know, we get out of the service, we have the core, these people are coming back after having served tours and war and some of the garbage that they're having to deal with, and they're looking at their life ahead, and they're dealing with some of the garbage of the past. Um, Jim talks about all of us have to, have to write a check. Some people have to get it paid in full. But all of us who have been in the service, and those, certainly those people who are in war at the moment now, are going to bring back with them a little bit of that. And, and I think your conversation about asking for help, going to the places, you know, having the courage to really peel back that facade that you've created for yourself so nobody can come in is, is really an important message. If you had to say, in just a few, few minutes, five minutes or so, what would you say to that young vet who's listening to this program right now who's maybe heard or maybe thinking, you know what, I might reach out, I might ask for help, but is struggling with believing that they're a failure or they're not making the right choices? What, what would you say to them? You're talking directly to them right now through that mic. I, 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 think, I think it's important um, a big job to, 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 to talk to that guy because guy or, or woman now at this point um, you've been put through uh, an experience that most people in the world have never experienced and some of it has been horrifyingly dehumanizing and some of it has been affirming in terms of your abilities as a human being and your capacity to withstand uh, fear and pain and horror most of the people in our society don't understand that and as a result you're going to feel estranged you're going to feel somehow um, uh, different um, and your experiences were different but you are not different you are the same as everybody else and everybody else feels the same thing you do um, perhaps not as in, uh, intensely given your recent experience what you the big job you've got now is to allow yourself to decompress, to take a look at where you've been and what you've done and what has happened in your life and what you hope to have happen in your life, and take those experiences and make them as positive and make them as meaningful uh, uh, ammunition as you can to make yourself become the bigger, better person you are, you're capable of being. And the way in which you do that is to be willing willing to be courageous enough to, to open up and say here's who I am here's what I've done here's who I here's where I am in my life and here's what I want and I matter and you matter and the way in which we can come together will make us both stronger but you've got to learn one of the things you've got to learn is the, the to let go of the I have to do it all and I can't be I can't be weak I can't be uh, sad I can't be uh, less than uh, I uh, am expected than, than is expected of me um, the way in which you can allow yourself to grow to the person you want to be is to allow yourself to be uh, to be uh, humble enough to reach out and say, will you help me? Will you show me? Will you take my hand? Will you allow me to help you? Uh, will you uh, love me? Will you let me love you? I mean, 
these these are pretty intimate things, but they are also urgently necessary pieces of our lives, and I think that we uh, we can't allow ourselves to lose touch with them as a result of the experiences, some of the painful experiences we've had, whether it be in civilian life with parents who are not as uh, uh, forthcoming as you would want them to be, or in uh, military life with uh, circumstances that are, that beggar the imagination of most people. We have to be able to say, I've I have now come through all of this, and I can look back at what I've done, what I've succeeded in doing, what I've failed at doing, and realize that that whole stew of experiences and emotions can be put to to positive use in terms of me being the person I want to be. I just need to be open and willing to reach out, ask for help if I need it, and offer help when when the opportunity is presented to me. Mr. Farrell? Semper Fidelis, I really, really want you to know how much um, we appreciate you coming on and taking a, taking an hour of your time. David? Yep, it's time for those shout-outs. I know it. If you stick around with us, Mr. Farrell, don't, don't, don't bail on us quite yet. Go ahead, David. All right, we got quite a few. We're growing on our shout-outs. First off, we have Helping Hands Worldwide down there in Southern California with Sida Helms. Again, go to our webpage, um, standardease.org, and Check out Sida's stuff. We're looking for children's books to be sent to her in our name. We'd appreciate it very much. Mike Harado, uh, still in a fight. Mike was down in Camp Pendleton last week working with the Warrior Games. He got to sing for him. Semper Tunes, Gunny Wolf. Uh, got new cartoons coming up all the time. If you're at Quantico or Camp Lejeune, stop by one of his stores. The Graffiti War Project with Doc and his crew. They just did a showing of the graffiti project at Mike Tuttle's Wolfgang Gallery up in New York. Doc Bernie Duff doing his wonderful stuff. Um, go to again, go to our webpage. You can find a link to his galleries. Uh, Chewie's putting up some good stuff over on GusMcCoy.com. A uh, couple of good stories lately. Uh, American Veterans for Equal Rights. Uh, Danny Meyer is always looking for support on his side. And Eddie Neese, Eddie Neese with the Lance Corporal Robert I. Slattery Detachment Number 206 in the Marine Corps League going down to, down to, uh, help me out, Gar. Don't know. But. <laughs> going down to uh, Walter Reed. There we go. And Jim McCormick with Operation Regeneration.com.org. Let's not dot forget. Org. Let's not forget we now have MikeFarrell.org and the work that he's doing as well. I'd like to head you on over there and and be there so uh and so anyways we're gonna wrap it up for the show right now mike stick around I just want a couple of quick little things and we'll get back to you for one more episode i'm uh, garland green from a town in israel to my left the dbr christian to my metaphorical and my political right james l johnson jr and mike farrell coming up from southern california thanks for being on board <laughs> <laughs>